0: Buildings entirely crushed and
1: crumbled. I'm not sure if it's safe to report from my vantage point. I I really need to leave. So
0: the fences informed me that the surrounding areas are, are in ruin. I I see some people running now. In the opinion of this reporter, if this nation or in fact the world ever needed heroes, that time is now. That time is now.
2: firestorm the fire and water podcast a proud member of the fire and water podcast network i'm one of your hosts the irredeemable shag along with me is my co-host the celebratory and birthday celebrating rob kelly it's not really his birthday folks but you'll understand in a minute how you doing buddy
1: that was my black belt impression
2: you like it <laughs> You know, everyone who has that uh, truncate silence function on their uh, <laughs> podcast player does not get that joke,
1: right? <laughs> well, then it's just an Easter egg for for the more uh, the more serious fan of the Firewater Podcast, the more the more
2: patient pan, fan. More uh, patient. There we go. Yeah.
1: Well, same thing. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yes, folks, we are here to celebrate a birthday, not mine, although it's around the corner. Just saying, Rob, and not Rob, but somebody <laughs> else's. Whose birthday? Does that, that
1: even up? mean? Like, what am I supposed to do?
2: Nothing. I mean, I'm just saying we might be having dinner a day or two after my birthday
1: like we did for you. That's all. Okay. You didn't pay for my dinner around my birthday, so why should I do the same for you? Damn it. <laughs> I don't do this game very well, do Hasht- I? Hashtag Baker.
2: <laughs> <laughs> why don't you tell people whose birthday we're celebrating? They don't want to hear our nonsense.
1: <laughs> I think they do. Uh, no, of course, we're here to celebrate on September 10th. It is the birthday of Jerry Conway. Uh, Anyone who's been listening to the show for any period of time knows how much Shag and I are fans of Jerry. He has been on this very show uh, several times. times. He's been on Shag's show. He's been on one of my shows. uh, And he's just a great writer. He's one of our favorites. And so kind of like with the Jim Apero show that we did just a couple of weeks ago, uh, we thought it would be fun to commemorate uh, the man's birthday by talking about some of his work. Now, in the sort of the – The the flip side to the Aparo one where we talked about a a lot of, like, Jim Aparo's greatest works. This episode, of course, because we've covered so many Jerry stories before. Uh, He's Uh, written Aquaman. He's written Firestorm. He wrote the greatest single piece of uh, literature in Western civilization, which is Justice League of America number 200. Uh, We decided this episode we're going to cover some more kind of obscure Jerry Conway stories, stuff that's a little bit off the beaten track, at least in terms of what we've been covering to this point.
2: Absolutely. And uh, we we each picked one story, which we'll get to in just a minute. Now, before we do that, we should take a second to thank our sponsor where we're going to plug a couple more Jerry related stuff. Mm -hmm. Folks, this episode of the Fire and Water podcast is sponsored in part by InStockTrades.com. InStockTrades is your best online source for trades, hardcovers and other collected editions, all for up to forty-two percent off with free shipping orders of $50 or more. What Jerry items do you bring today, Rob?
1: Well, as I indicated earlier, I have an inhuman story. Uh, I love the Inhumans. I really do. They're some of my favorite characters. I don't ever get to bring them up very much. So, uh for this uh for this pick, I have Inhumans Beware the Inhumans trade paperback, uh, which reprints Marvel Superheroes number 15, Incredible Hulk Annual, Fantastic Four 81 through 83, Avengers 95, plus their uh, solo run in Amazing Adventures numbers 1 through 10. And one of those issues is the one I'm going to be talking about in a moment. And they even reprint Not Brand Act number 12, <laughs> uh, which I love. I love that they made kind of room for that to, to post, like, kind of the parody of The Inhumans. Uh, the stories are by Stan Lee, Roy Thomas, Jerry Conway, of course, Jack Kerr. Kirby, Neil Adams, just super fun stuff. I mean, if all you ever know about the Inhumans is that god-awful TV series, give the comic book a chance because I think <laughs> it's really, really fun. It's 352 pages. That's a lot of Inhumans. Uh, normal price is 34.99, but in stock trades price is $20.29. You save 42% off. Uh, check a look at it on, on, on the link. You'll see this gorgeous cover by Jack Kirby of all the Inhumans. So give it a try.
2: See, you already mentioned the TV show, so you took the wind out of sail at one of my jokes. I was going to announce you doing the new Inhumans Minute podcast, but uh, <laughs> oh well.
1: Actually, that show didn't last long, so that would be kind of a quick podcast.
2: (laughs) My pick, Nessie, I haven't told you guys what comic I'm going to cover yet. I am covering uh, Atari Force Number 1. This is the, I guess, technically the second series, the ongoing one that was on the comic stands. Now, I realize it's not completely off the beaten path, but by this point, we're sitting 35 years later, whatever, it's a little bit off the beaten path nowadays. People don't necessarily even know this exists. So I picked something in that wheelhouse. I picked Atari Classics Sword Quest trade paperback. Now, if you were a gamer way back in the 80s, you might remember there were these, uh, these were these comic books that would come in these video games that were tied with Sword Quest from Atari. There was Earthworld, World, Fire World, Water World, and there was going to be another one called Airworld, World. And they had these little mini-comics, and it all led up to this huge prize giveaway thing. Well, those comics are reprinted here. They're written by Roy Thomas and Jerry Conway, written by George Perez and – I'm sorry, uh, drawn and inked by George Perez and Dick Giordano. I mean what a fantastic collection of creators on this thing.
1: When did Perez ever sleep? I can't imagine he did back in
2: those (laughs) days. I know, right?
1: Did he have time for this?
2: I, I can't possibly imagine. So uh, the, I've already mentioned the creators. It was, uh, they, this collection has been gloriously, as they put it, remastered and collected in a trade paperback form. It features Tor and Tara, which are these two siblings who are out trying to recover the sword of ultimate sorcery. So all collected, the, the, the four mini-comics are 152 pages in its full color. Dynamite's the company that put all this packaging together. Normal retails for 15.99, but you can get it for 30% off on in-stock trades. So it's only $11.19. I mean, Basically, ten bucks for an awesome dip back into eighties with creators that you know you love, and you're a pretty good bet you didn't actually read these comics. So, uh, well, actually, you know, here's an interesting thought, and this goes to Atari Force as well. I wonder if the circulation on the Atari cartridges was actually higher than a regular newsstand comic at that point.
1: I bet it, it f- was. It I probably I, I had them. Yeah. Oh. But
2: who knows what the crossovers? Either way, uh, of readers between the video games. So go out and pick up Atari Classic Sword Quest trade paperback. Go out to in stock trades and order those through them, folks, as quickly as you can. So, all right, Rob. So I think we're going to start off by talking about the Inhumans. Is that right?
1: Yes, uh, they said the story I wanted to talk about is uh, for in the middle of their run uh, in the Amazing Adventures where they were headlining, co-headlining the book with the Black Widow. That's kind of a weird combination. Uh, and this is one of Jerry's earliest uh, comics works. Uh, this issue is from Amazing Adventures number seven. The story is in Evening's Wait for Death. And it was on sale April twentieth, nineteen seventy one. So again, this is pretty, pretty, yeah, pretty early on. It features an amazing, of course, a Neil Adams cover uh, where you've got this guy we don't know who he is and he's yelling "Burn, Black Bolt, burn!" and meanwhile Black Bolt's dispensing some pain to a bunch of uh, army guys. And then down at the bottom there's a little thing about Black Widow because she she was the uh, the co-feature in this book. So it's it's it really is exciting looking. And again, if you didn't, this was the Inhumans kind of first chance at uh, solo stars after having been basically supporting players in Fantastic Four all this time. So, as I said, the story is an evening's wait for death. Uh, I purposely read this story. I read all the Amazing Adventures comics a while back, but I purposely reread this one out of context, uh, because this was Jerry taking over for Roy Thomas. He had hmm. been writing the strip, Stan Lee had been writing it, and then Roy Thomas took over. And this is Jerry essentially doing a fill in because Roy Thomas is back in the very next issue, and then Jerry would come back after that. So obviously, there was a kind of a lot of like deadline craziness going on. They were shifting back and forth. But I thought. It would be interesting to read this story sans context of just okay. What is this? How does it read just by itself without, no, worrying, without worrying about all the no, other no, issues? Yep. As if you bought it off the newsstand. So as it, I it, mentioned, if it makes
2: you feel any better, that's how I read it because I've never read go. it. Perfect. I've never read it in humans comic before today.
1: Oh my goodness! Uh, that's drawn by Neil Adams and John Verporten and lettered by Artie Simek. So it opens with four members of the Inhumans, Gorgon, Triton, Medusa, and Karnak, wash up on the distant shores of Red China, where they are discovered by a startled and scared group of locals who regard these strange-looking beings as monsters. When the four wake I'll up, wake to, up see to see the, the humans have their guns drawn, Medusa initiates an attack, believing they were about, they were about to be shot, shot while, while unconscious. unconscious. Triton dives into the ocean and activates a hidden lever, which unveils a futuristic looking craft inside the cliff face put there months ago by the inhumans they board the ship and take off meanwhile in san francisco a mysterious man named mr dibbs approaches a father and son with a mysterious weapon instead of a hand scaring the young boy he apologizes and converts the futuristic appendage into an actual hand escorting the two into a car they are gassed into unconsciousness in the front seat of the car the empty costume is of black black Later, Medusa and the rest approach the California shore, where they are greeted by the muscle-bound denizens of the beach with fists. The the humans make short work of them, with Triton distracting the goons so Medusa, Karnak, and Gorgon can resume their search for Black Bolt. After sealing some clothes, they hail a cab. When they emerge, they stumble into the middle of a standoff between armed police and a gang of armed militants. Medusa, Karnak, and Gorgon are horrified to see that the leader of the gang introduces his list of demands, and he is backed by... Black Bolt <gasps> <gasps> <laughs> to be continued. So uh yeah the not I mean this is a short story obviously it's only about about 12 pages cuz it's only half the book. But uh, I'm going to ask you, so you said you've never read an Inhumans comic. What was your approach? What was your take on this?
2: Well, let me back up a little bit. I certainly read comics that had the Inhumans in it, but I've never read a story where they were the lead characters. I don't know how that's happened in all my years. I've read tons of Marvel comics, just never this. So for this, it was a little interesting because I'm certainly familiar with the characters. I knew who they were. It was really interesting seeing them as protagonists because I feel like their personalities here are very, very different than when they're guest stars because usually when they're guest stars, they're almost an anti. They're causing some sort of, you know, heroes meet up and fight kind of thing. So it was very interesting to see them in the protagonist role for me. Gorgon just was totally badass. Like I never expected him to be so cool. And yet I really, really dug him and how he's throwing people around and smashing them together and super strong. I didn't really get a sense of Black Bolt because you know he's got amnesia throughout the whole story, so right. you don't get that. But Medusa and, Kray- and she's the first one awake, you know, and, and well, she kind of starts the fight actually, but she's very competent with her powers. Um, I don't really understand why Triton keeps running away into the water. Um, <laughs> it's almost like a bad Aquaman joke um, there, it's, you know, and always needing water. But and then Karnak, they didn't specifically talk about Karnak's ability, but I could tell it was being displayed through his actions. So all in all, I really enjoyed reading about this kooky quartet. Of, uh, of In humans running around, I thought it was very interesting, and the, the muscle bound guys I was cracking up at the the stuff with the musclebound guys. It just seems so you know 1970s jokey muscle beach kind of stuff that cracked me up
1: yeah it doesn 't say that they 're on Venice beach specifically, but you get the sense that that's Venice Beach because that's what Venice Beach is famous for, these right. ridiculously built guys. And as drawn by Neil Adams, of course, they are absurdly huge. I right. mean, these guys are just massive dudes. And, of course, they see these strange people wash up on the beach and like, let's beat them up, you know? Right, exactly, like, okay, I people, know. What kind of guys? Um, yeah, I mean, I, like I said, I have a, a love for the Inhumans. I don't know where it comes from exactly. I don't think I read a lot of Inhumans comics as a kid, but it's just something about – how unusual they are! I mean, Gorgon has the the the, the horse legs, like he's basically mm-hmm. like a centaur, and that's his right. big thing is that he can stomp and makes the ground shake. And Karnak has the karate chop, and there's Medusa, of course, who actually spent some time as a member of the Fantastic Four at mm-hmm. one point. Uh, as drawn, of course, by Neil Adams. I mean, Neil Adams in the 1970s is as good as it gets. Uh, it's just beautiful looking. The characters are really amazing. I love the lighting he gives and some of these effects. When Triton is getting up off the beach, there's kind of a – he's in shadow at one point where he jumps into the water. I dig all that. And then there's this other panel where Gorgon is taking two of the Red China soldiers and bunking their heads together. And that's done in, in almost silhouette. Uh, that's really cool. Uh, so, I like So yes? Red Red China. Yeah, is are we allowed to say that anymore? Well, red is red, red is red is well. That's true. Well, I guess at the point, not all of China was communist. So that's what oh, I had to maybe that's make why the we, distinction okay. of calling it red China. Okay. Uh, but uh, but yeah, and then you got this Mister Dibs guy, who of course, I mean, at the time, Sidney Poitier had just been in. In the heat of the night, so they called me Mr. – and he had done the sequel. They called me Mr. Tibbs, so here we've got Mr. Dibbs. Oh, yeah, I knew that's... it was
2: something. I, c- yeah. I couldn't put my finger on it. I'm like, what is – Because you know what I kept doing is I kept going back to Claw. Um, because he's got a mechanical right, hand. So he's got
1: a mechanical hand, right.
2: And it looks even like, like a little bit like Claw's hand. I'm like, but this isn't what Claw looks like, and I
1: couldn't put it together. Yeah. Thank he you. even has a line where he says the name is Dibs, Mr. Dibs, which is yes. literally right from the movie. Oh, so this is kind of like a little bit of a gag there. And so, we, again, we find out that this this guy, the, the mute guy, is actually Black Bolt, who's kind of under this sort of amnesia sort of thing. So, I mean, by itself, I tried to kind of look at the story as – does this read like a Jerry Conway story does it have any of the things in it that i associate with jerry as a writer uh and not that much because as i mentioned he's taking over for roy thomas for just for the month so it was sort of like here jerry just here's the ball just run with it a little uh almost like pick up the thanos glove and run a little bit to get us to the van and then someone else will pick up for you <laughs> but the scene where they uh medusa and karnak and gorgon steal the clothes Mm -hmm. Uh, Steal the the regular people's clothes And then they walk out And then they go to the city They go to San Francisco And there's this moment where Gorgon says Medusa, why did you pick this place? I feel most uncomfortable And they have all the people staring at them That's a very, to me, Jerry Conway sequence Because you had that a lot in Justice League Where a couple of the characters would go to some remote location And then they would interact with the locals and people would be staring at them because they'd be like, what? Who's this red tornado guy? And here the Inhumans look very strange. Mm. Gorgon is – I mean they're in regular clothes, but Gorgon is this huge guy. Medusa's hair is, of course – you know, it's like Elvira times a thousand in terms of how much hair she's got piled on her head, and she's got these giant boobs. And Karnak has got the, the 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 turban on, so people are and you see people kind of staring at them a little, like what's going on here. So that to me feels like a very Jerry Conway kind of moment. Uh, is that sort of thing of where you, they they're interacting with local people, and we see what how strange that is.
2: My Jerry Conway moment, or not moment, just kind of. It- uh, signature that I felt like Throughout here, and and maybe it's just part of the Inhumans Programming, I don't know, but is the way they bicker with each other mm-hmm. Is these four Inhumans They're obviously all working together, but they're constantly Just sniping at each other, you know, when Titan Triton runs off into the sea, uh, I mean An Aquaman joke, sure, but even they get wound up You know, they're mm-hmm. like, why is he leaving us? And they're like No, he's giving us a distraction, he's the bravest of us all You know, and <laughs> and there's all this patter back And forth, and and they're not agreeing On things, and Karnak's bossing them around I just, I love that kind of uh, group that has a dysfunction. Like, I don't know why I would like two people that work together and are dysfunctional. I can't imagine mm, where I yeah, might no. get it that gets old, yeah, it, it gets does. old, though. It does. It does. But anyway, so I, uh, I feel like Jerry really laid that out well. And again, maybe that's part of the Inhumans programming, but I, I, that was what I kind of felt like I was seeing from Jerry. Because, of course, Firestorm, you know, Ronnie and the professor always bickering, and yet they work as a function as a team.
1: Yeah, and clearly this book, Amazing Adventures, was kind of used as a, a sort of throw, throw things together and see what would work because the Inhumans would disappear off the book as of number 11, uh, and then the Beast took over. As a as a lead feature, and that was written by Jerry Conway in the beginning. Isn't, uh, that, I, tur- isn't
2: that where he turns blue, or was he already blue?
1: Uh, I believe so. Yeah, no, I believe he because he's gray. He looks grayish in the. Okay, that's,
2: that's that was the beginning of him blue, becoming blue. Yeah, right okay.
1: now at the time, just to give a little more context, Jerry was pretty busy. He was writing this uh, occasionally, writing the Inhuman strip. He was writing Kazar for Astonishing Tales. Plus, he was writing Daredevil and Iron Man. So, I mean, he was pretty busy, but, I mean, this is – there's a, a thing I think about when I talked to um, James and Mateus a bunch of years ago, and he, we were talking about a uh, some horror story he, he had done early in his career. And he said that it was a really great training ground for new writers to be able to learn to write short stories. And you think about that – the Inhumans is like, what, six characters, and here there's only four, and, and Black Bolt's kind of in the background. But, I mean, he's only got ten pages to work with, but he's got to find – Stuff for four characters to do and move the plot forward and bring in the villain. That's really tough. Ten pages is nothing, especially when you realize one page is the splash page. So right. he's even got nine. Uh, but yet, again, he carries the story forward. It's it's a serialized kind of thing, and it's very exciting. So it's, it's good training for a writer early on. Uh, To be able to kind of shift gears and he has to write a whole book with Iron Man, a whole book with Daredevil, but then 10 pages for the Inhumans. And I I looked on Mike's Amazing World and not only was Jerry doing all the stuff for Marvel, he was writing the occasional shorts thing for DC and doing black and white magazine stuff for like Warren and Skywald. I mean he was cranking out in 1971.
2: Yeah, I'm going to give you some more perspective here. In the back of this comic, there is Stan's Soapbox kind of page, you know, Marvel Bolton. And in there, there is an announcement, and item, you know, item, with a big exclamation point. Um, There was the Academy of Comic Book Arts nominations for 1970. And in the category of Outstanding New Talent includes Jerry Conway. There you uh, go. As well as – they only give last names. They say Conway. And then they say Smith and Wrightson. i got to assume that's Barry Windsor Smith and Bernie Wrightson as well since it's yeah. 1970. But so that tells you he's brand new, and yet he's doing all of this stuff already. And he was a young, young guy when he broke into the business. He was telling us in one of the interviews that – I mean I, I don't want to speak out of turn, but I think he was like 18 or something like that when he broke in. It was something very like young. I might be speaking out of turn there. I just remember in one of the interviews. He was very young. I mean maybe not 18,
1: but, but certainly young guy.
2: Yeah, so good. Good on him. And uh, and another thing too is back then, uh, and this may be more of an issue in the '60s, but you're talking about them throwing weird titles together. You know, the the distributor had a chokehold on comic book distribution back then to the newsstands, and Marvel could only get so many comics distributed each month. Right. And so in order to, they, you know, let's say the number was 12, I'm just making that up, let's say they can only do 12 comics, but well, they want to get as much content out there as possible. So they would do these double-up books, where you'd say, you know, you get Iron Man and, and Ant-Man, or in this case, it's Inhumans and um, Black Widows. Widow. So, yeah.
1: Which was also written by Jerry, I forgot to mm-hmm. mention, he wrote. he's writing the Black Widow strip too.
2: I read the Black Widow strip as well, which, by the way, was really, really good. It, it was a lot of fun, espionage, spy stuff. There's some crazy Avengers tech stuff that just cracked me up. So it's worth it for that as well. I mean, the, the art's by Don Heck and Bill Everett, so lots of fun. And, of course, Black Widow's gorgeous. But, uh, yeah, super. So all these were super fun for me because, I, again, I don't have that window into the Inhumans. And I really don't have a big window into 19, early 1970s Marvel. For me, it's more like I know conceptually what happened from reading like, Marvel Saga but I didn't <laughs> read the story. I, well, I know that's funny. I know the it's you know I know the history, but I didn't live it, if you will. So I yeah, I, I remember the stories book, is different.
1: Yeah. All right, yeah. it's good stuff. It's, it said I real I love the Inhumans, and I love the chance to talk about them on a podcast. And so when we decided to do this show for Jared, I thought I was so happy to learn that he wrote some Inhumans. I was like, this is perfect. <laughs>
2: Well, as I said, my book is not uh, as obscure, but it is something that after 35 years people don't necessarily remember and I felt like it was the perfect connection for our show. I covered Atari Force number no. 1 which uh, is was covered in January 1984 and was on the shelves October 6, 1983. And if you if you're not familiar with the book, and a lot of you might not be nowadays or you might just know of its existence. It's Jerry Conway writing with art by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Praise be his, name. his name. So Wow, that's amazing. And I also felt like it was a nice connection to our Who's Who show. Because, you know, we've been covering Who's Who now for, I don't know, 37 years, whatever it is. (laughs) And in it, we have a, touched on a whole bunch of Atari Force characters. And every time we covered an Atari Force character, I would say, wow, this art's amazing. Wow, I, I bought all these issues. I still haven't read them. And someone tweeted us out to us recently, or maybe it was Facebook. I don't remember it saying, you know, has Shag read Atari Force yet? And I shamefully had to say no. So I thought this is perfect. This is a Jerry comic that's not in a lot of people's hands. It ties in with our who's who stuff. It's a great comic, by the way. And it was super fun. So oh, yeah. Going-
1: oh, I was, this is a great pick. So did you read this off the stand or did you read it later? How did this I go down for you? I did. I think I bought Atari Force – I at least got the first issue. I remember having this because this, this cover is to me one of the great comic covers like kind of ever. I, I think it's – I mean I'll let you describe it, but I remember seeing this on the stands and just it hit me right in the solar plexus.
2: <laughs> well, I remember, again, I, you know, first time reading it, but I always would see Atari Force on the newsstand because you know it, it, I'd get my X Men or I would get my Firestorm or Iron Man or whatever I was buying, and Atari Force would always be there. So I always saw the covers, and they're always gorgeous because you know after Jose leaves, there's a bunch of the great artists that come after him. So, but I had never picked it up, and I agree this cover, this particular cover is great. Now, before I want to talk about this actual issue, I just want to give you a little bit of backstory on it. So, Atari Force is a comic book based not on a video game, but based on a video game company. Company, which is so strange you know <laughs> you would think it's a rich you know good it's, I, that that's why, part of the reason I avoided it. I thought it was like remember, remember the Kubert cartoon of course it, it was not good. The Pac-Man cartoon, not bad. Kubert cartoon, not good. And so in my mind, I'm looking at this Atari Force on the shelves going, oh gosh, it's some sort of video game comic. And you know, I'm not a video gamer, so I'm like, I don't care about this. So that's part of the reason I avoided it. So years later, I, I get the I begin to understand the real thing. Now th- as I said, this is volume two, because volume one were again, I talked about mini comics in the beginning that were I mentioned the Sword Quest, they did the same thing with these Atari Force. It was a series of uh, video game comics that were in the packages, you'd buy your Atari cartridge, you'd bring it home, and inside was a mini-comic. And there, there were mini-comics in Defender, Berserk, Star Raiders, Phoenix, and Galaxian. And so those five comics were a little more straightforward. It was about five regular humans going off into the multiverse, and their, their comic would sort of interact with that universe of that game. So there would be some parallels there. Whereas in this case, with this Atari Force comic we're going to cover, the only connection really is that some of them wear the Atari logo and one of the characters is named Tempest, which is tied in, You know, of course, the popular video game in the 80s. Beyond that, there's no connection to any Atari game. It's just a balls-crazy science fiction story is what it boils down to, and it's a lot of fun. So you've talked about the cover. I should get into this. So on the cover, you've got your, your main characters. You've got Packrat, you've got Tempest, Dart, uh, Morphia, Babe, and uh, Martin Champion, and, and those are probably names that mean nothing to you. So I'll describe the characters. Packrat, it's this little tiny, like anthropomorphic. He looks like a gerbil, even though they call him rat. And he's, he looks like a, a humanoid sized gerbil. So he's got giant ears and he's got the uh, sort of rat teeth and he's pointing a gun out at you. Tempest is your super hunky young 80s rock star teen with the long flowing blonde hair and a bandana. And he's holding like a big machine gun, kind of, thing, or a laser machine gun. He's got this cool outfit on. It's kind of. Got the Atari symbols on his chest. Then there's the super sexy in the very front dart. That's the one everyone remembers. She's got um, her hair's all white. And it's pulled back into this ponytail. And she's got this interesting sort of uh, almost tribal tattoo across her eye, these swirls, which look great. And she's in a pose with another laser rifle. She's basically your badass chick mercenary who's super hot is kind of where she comes into. Then you get Morphea, who's this green alien, all green alien with a laser pistol who uh, looks sort of mysterious and uh, almost, I always, look, I always thought they were kind of like a religious character, but they're more of a scientist. Then you get Babe, who's like cringing in fears, this enormous 14-foot blue creature, kind of you know, uh, almost like a shape like an egg, sort of giant, and blue, and they're obviously fearful. They have a, the, a very infantile mind. And in the background is Martin Champion, who's running up, who's uh, Tempest's dad. He's not even in the comic, but uh, this issue at least, and he's coming. He's the grizzled old war soldier running up behind him. Then in the background, there is this amazing. And it, it, is, is this cross hatching? Is that what this is?
1: This is a cross hatching effect. Yeah.
2: Okay. So it, at first, you might not even notice it. There's this blue and purple effect in the background. You might just think it's an effect, but once you look closer and really pay attention to it, it's it's actually this giant looming form of a character called the Dark Destroyer, and his hands are coming in like he's about to grab the Atari Force. But you actually got to look to see it. And then it says, "Introducing the strangest sci-fi heroes of all." Now, I spent all this time describing it. What I could have simply have just said is, "The art is by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. <laughs> Praise be his be name." His name. So you know it's beautiful. So yeah. now I've gone on and on. Rob, you ta- you, you give your more artistic.
1: Well, I mean, of the you cover. did it really well. It's it's an amazing. It's the perfect first issue cover. Uh, it gives you the characters. Uh, they're they're clearly put upon because they're pointing their weapons all in different directions, which suggests that you know trouble is all around them. Uh, the background image, the Dark Destroyer, and the stipple thing is just such a great look. The colors are gorgeous. The logo is great. I like that it's very it's very simple, but it's offset to an angle, and then you've got by Jerry Conway and Jose Jose Luis Garcia Lopez below. But that is his his name. name, yeah. It's just it's everything you would want as a first issue cover. It just is. I mean, you just – you're like, this is perfect. It, this I look at this cover, and it reminds me of that story that, that we've all heard – or not all heard, but we've heard about that there was a, a day at the DC Comics offices in the 80s where the famous artist um, Webis, uh was in. He was visiting, and he was talking to, I think, Andy Helfer uh, and looking at a page of Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, his name, I artwork, and, and he was looking at it, and he looks to Helfer, and he goes – he uses photographic reference, no? And Helfer goes, no. And mm. Me- Me- Mwabas just went, son of a bitch. You know? <laughs> like, yeah, that's how good this guy is. I mean, it's just, you mentioned working the Atari logo into the costumes. I mean, yeah, that's a that's a crass commercial consideration uh, that you have to literally. But he does it so well that it looks genuine. It looks like a uniform. It doesn't, you know, it's not like Nintendo Force. I mean, this looks... It looks real. It's just, it's spot on perfect. You'll get to see it in the the gallery post over on our website, com. But boy, it's just, there's no way you're not dropping 75 cents for this first issue, at least based on this cover.
2: Right, and and in the '80s, everybody was doing their own teams because everyone wanted to have the next X Men, right? Everyone right, wanted to burst out or have some big, you know, team book that would sell like crazy, and so you would see a lot of these disparate teams of characters you've never recognized or never heard of, and so after a while, you start to build up a, you know, I don't know, a, a callus against it. It was like, oh, okay, it's another new team, whatever, and <laughs> but this one, it. It's just so gorgeously put together. You can't help but go, I, I want to know more. So that's why I always remembered who they were, even though I wouldn't pick it up, because I you know, I don't want to read about Q-Bert, You Q-Bert. Know, so. um, now, if you read in the back page, they do talk about how they're saying, basically, everyone here knows Jerry Conway already, but you might not know Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Praise be his, Praise name. Be his name. They say that, uh, let's see, uh, Jose, you will definitely get to know. His artwork is possibly the most sensitive and imaginable uh, available in comics today. He's been here at DC for quite a while, but this is his first monthly creation. Huh. Now they do also plug Star Raiders Which is a graphic novel So you might not be aware of this folks If you're an Atari Force fan You should seek out the DC graphic novel Star Raiders It is tied in with the Atari Force universe But it's a separate story So it's worth checking out
1: hmm. Sorry. I not think I knew that
2: Oh yeah, I I actually stumbled across it in um, oh I don't know when I was on one of my world tours, going around city to (laughs) city visiting people, and I found it like you know a cheap bin or something, and I'm flipping through it because I'm like oh you know I don't really own many DC graphic novels, and I was looking at and I was like oh my gosh these are some Atari Force characters in here. So that blew me away. I picked it up and then was reading about it just last night more. And so, yeah, it's, uh, it takes place – if I remember correctly, I think it takes place between the original Atari 4 series and this Atari 4 series. And it's not necessarily about the Atari Force characters but about the universe that they live in.
1: <laughs> it's, a, it's the Mandalorian of – yeah graphic novel. exactly what it is.
2: <laughs> because everyone demanded it. That's exactly right. So we've talked about this comic. Let's actually talk it. So here we go. All right. So part one, Fresh Blood. Script by Jerry Conway. Pencils by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Praise be his name. And his name. It, it never gets tired. Uh, <laughs> inks by uh, Ricardo the, uh, Villa Grand, uh, colors by Tom Zwick. I probably said that wrong. Uh, probably said most of those wrong, actually. And letters by Bob LePan. So here, here's a sort of quick recap. It's a little hard to do because this is a giant scoping issue, it's introduction of a bunch of characters, Uh, and this is before the age of decompressed storytelling, so a bunch of things happen, so forgive me if this is a little hard to follow. I did my best to sort of summarize it. Uh, In the beginning, we meet two mercenaries, the beautiful yet violent lady called Dart, and her boyfriend, and we know this because she constantly calls him Lover, uh, the man called Blackjack, not to be confused with the Aquaman villain. (laughs) That would have been interesting as well. Well, it could be his descendant, I suppose, but anyway. uh, They're in a seedy space bar, so this is like way in the future. Dart and Blackjack are beating up on, and this alien goon squad. And these goons work for a man named General Kai. And the general has made a big mistake. He hired Dart and Blackjack to do a job, but refused to pay them for services rendered. Now they want their money or a pound of flesh. So Dart and Blackjack do win the fight, but some undisclosed mental powers alert Dart that the cops are on their way, so they hide out. Meanwhile, General Kai faces the Dark Destroyer and then is killed for failing to capture Dart. Ooh. Intrigue. Uh, Then we're introduced to the alien named Babe. As I described before, Babe's this 14 foot tall blue creature uh, with the disposition of an infant. Babe is abducted from his home world by slavers intending to sell him. Next, we jump over to to Atari Headquarters, which is a satellite, which is awesome. And we meet Tempest, who's also known as Chris Champion. Now, Chris is the only person directly connected to the previous iteration of Atari Force, as his dad was a member of that team. Tempest is, as I mentioned, the all-action-oriented, handsome blonde guy, exactly what you think of for a 1980s action dude. And uh, Professor Venture is testing Tempest's abilities, including Tempest's ability to use portals to pass through solid objects. Apparently, he's passing through the multiverse to do this. And we find out that Tempest and Dart have a history together, a bit like a brother and a sister. Uh, there we also eat, meet Morphia, who's an alien green scientist who apparently will become later because uh, she's on the cover – then uh, finally we meet the thief Packrat, who looks, as I mentioned, like an anthropomorphic hamster or gerbil. And he is absolutely adorable looking, but we find out exactly how dangerous he is, too, with his claws and teeth as he's ripping apart people that are in, in his way when he's trying to steal stuff. The final pages, we discover Dart and Blackjack did survive their battle after hiding out, but are now pondering what their future holds. So that is the recap of this, and I absolutely stinking love this thing. It. it Coming into it, having never read it, not knowing where it's going, anything about it, it felt a lot to me, sort of like a a family-friendly version of a a 2000 AD story is is really kind of what I got the vibe off of this thing. I totally could follow what was going on. It was a great introduction to the characters. I mean, certainly we don't get the team together by the end, but if you just read this off the stands, you're like, I want to know more about these people, and I want to know how they got together. Is that the impression you got off of this?
1: Yeah, this is this was really fun. I I bought this at the time. I don't think I continued on with Atari Force. I'm not sure what I guess at 13. I guess was it the age I was? I just, I don't know. I wasn't. I don't know what I was looking for because this is a blast.
2: You're looking for Cuba. Uh,
1: I get yeah, maybe so. Uh yeah, Galaga Force. Uh no, this is this is really fun. It's funny, you said that this you felt like this was the family friendly version of a 2000 AD story, and while I see what you're saying, I kind of came at it from the other end in that. I am surprised how kind of adult this story is hmm. for something with the Atari brand on it. Uh, um you, okay, get the, you don't fair. you don't really get the sense that, that Atari was really, you know, kind of like on Jerry to like do too much. I feel like they gave him a lot of freedom here. Uh, to kind of do what he wanted, because there's a lot of kind of like adult touches and little subtle things. I mean, I don't want to say super, super subtle, but that moment at the end where Blackjack and Dart are talking about how broke they are. Mm-hmm. And then she comes out and gives him this big, deep kiss. And then the next panel, she starts taking her shirt off and we see her bare shoulder and we see she's got a tattoo there. And he goes like that, huh? And she's like, uh-huh. And which is, you know, OK, we, <laughs> they're going oh, go, to they're, okay. they're go do it. Um the scene with the the guy being dropped into like the 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 acid kind of thing it turns him into a skeleton is really kind of gruesome uh, again of course i mean the layouts by jlgl JL, pbhn are just <laughs> un- unreal how good they are i mean that that panel of dark destroyer Leaning into the the acid bubble to pulling the gem right. bubble thing out is so beautifully done, wonderfully colored by Tom Zioko, I believe is how you say it. I love all the dark skies behind him. Um, babe looks suitably like like you, very expression, uh, very um, uh, very evocative expressions on on her face. I mean, she's a giant baby, so she has that. Uh, everything is from the face, and so we see that the the act the opening sequence is great with. Dart and Blackjack, I love when he's holding that that vase of, mm-hmm. of stuff and then gets shot. And then, <laughs> he, then he's like – and he goes, gangway, coming through. And he has like, almost like a comedy run. Right. I mean it's this is – this does make me want to read the rest of the issues of Atari Force because this is just so good as a intro to the story and the plot and where we're going.
2: Well, I wanted to follow up on that battle specifically because there's a lot going on. It's very – I did go back and look to see if they actually killed anybody. Other than General Kai, there's no definitive – Murders in this book they beat a lot of people Up they may have killed them I don't know so that That's where I was kind of thinking the family friendly side But um, the battle itself is so Expertly designed and drawn it's dynamic You can follow exactly what's Happening the whole way through it nobody at any point ever looks off model i mean there's almost like a, a little bit of a ancestor of kevin mcguire in some of the you talk about the facial expressions there's a little bit of ancestor of kevin mcguire in these facial expressions each one is you know very you can, expressive you can tell exactly what's going on in the character's mind the acting is there and, and the body shapes are amazing and the women are gorgeous and the men are hot, and it's just so it, amazingly I, I i'm losing my adjectives i'm just totally wowed by this thing and I get why I get why Dart became the breakout character. Uh, yeah. She's she's such a cool fighter. She's got a great, sexy, really unusual look. She's fun. She's got interesting powers. You want to know more about her? Uh, I even wonder if Jim Lee was sort of inspired by her when he created Zealot for Wildcats because there's a lot of similarities there with the short crop, white hair, the the facial tattoo stuff. I mean, it looks a lot like. I think Zealot was. I, I can't. I don't know all my Wildcats that well. The girl with the white hair that fought with swords, I want to say in Wildcats, whatever her name was. Anyway, <laughs> I get the feeling that maybe Dart was the inspiration for that.
1: Every panel, virtually every panel in this story is shot from a different angle. Every single one. And just the amount of work that that takes to conceive and be able to, of course, having uh, having the skill to be able to draw it uh, from every angle, and make it look good. I mean, the opening is great. I love the kind of the, 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 the drunken guy laying there. I mean, this is uh, the perfect team of this guy, of Conway and Lopez, of just absolutely knowing how to... Tease you just enough uh, to keep you interested, but setting up, you know, having to do lay all this pipe and kind of figure out, like, all right, you know, we got to bring it back for this. uh, You know, we're introducing a whole universe to you, uh, Mm -hmm. and we have to make it compelling enough in this issue that 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 it works as a one-issue story. But then you want to keep coming back more and more. And I love all the doodads and the inventions. I mean, all the little stuff that Dart and Blackjack have that are kind of like Batman utility belt stuff. The spaceship is really cool. I love the way. JLGL uh, conveys uh, Tempest's powers where he can sort of portal in. I Like, that's a really great effect. And, again, Jerry does it just a great job of, again, there's times where he slows it down and then speeds it up. He really feels like, it really feels like he, he put a lot of thought behind it. I mean, of course he did. I don't mean to right. say that he didn't for his other stories. But, it, obviously, when you're creating an all-new team for the first issue and you're hoping this series – takes off. You re- it's it's hard. It's really hard to do and yet he manages to pull it off here. This is this again, I don't know what my issue was at 13 that I didn't like this, but this was really fun to read.
2: Well, it took me a long time as a kid to to finally appreciate sci-fi comics too, cuz I I guess I wanted to see the explosions on the screen happen, I don't know. But as an adult who's learned to really enjoy sci-fi comics, this is one of the best. This is just absolutely Balls crazy, super fun. And I wanted to mention, you were talking about different characters. There is a character in here, uh, Doctor... Oh, geez, what's what's her name? Uh, she's the one testing Tempest. Professor Venture, that's her name. She has got her hair pulled back in a bun. She's got sunglasses on her head. She's smoking a cigar the whole time. She's got this really simple black-and-white design costume. The reason I want to bring her up is she really reminds me of, like, a Steve Rude character from Nexus. Like, I really feel like the simplistic lines, the so little effort to draw... I, I so little effort, the, so little design work, and yet it pulls it off perfectly. Little, very few lines, minimalism to make her have these great smiles and snarky looks on her face with a cigar. I just really feel like she's a character right out of Nexus, and it's just—and that's a compliment. And uh, and you know, I'm not even sure when the first issue of Nexus came out whether it was before, or after this. But I just feel uh, very excited by this comic.
1: It's funny, it's funny to say that because she reminded me. I feel like she has got to be just a, a distant descendant of uh, Doctor Janet Clyburn. Oh, geez. sure. It's the same. It just – I mean, GLGL has got this kind of type of hot scientist woman. Uh, And here she's not quite that – she's not quite so uh, staid here as as Janet Clybert is. But – and again, I like her with her magenta sunglasses and you mentioned the cigar. Everyone has a very distinctive look. I love it when she wraps her arms around Tempest. Exactly. She gives him the The hug. Like that's really well done. It's just – this thing is so well done and I can't imagine – um, that JLGL had time to do a monthly book. And, of course, Atari Force, unfortunately, didn't last all that long. But Jiminy Christmas, this is such a nice pairing. And I can only imagine if you're Jerry Conway and you write this script. I mean he already knew what artist he was working with. But imagine you know, you wrote a script and they're like, oh, who are you getting to draw it? Oh, Jose Luis Garcia You're like, thank you. Right? Oh, thank and you so much because you know he's going to find every inch of excitement in your story
2: especially when you're creating all new stuff. I mean, yeah, it's, you know, I it's not like you're writing your Inhuman script and you're like, okay, who's going to draw it? Oh, that's cool. You know, it's, it, these are your creations that are coming out of your head, spilling onto the page in the most gorgeous way possible. Ugh. Yeah. And... Um, Oh, geez. Uh, Now, you mentioned it last long. It went about 20 or so issues, and Jose does eventually have to leave the book, and I don't know if that's because he went over to DC Comics Presents or I just couldn't keep up, whichever. But then you get people like Eduardo Barreto. I mean, you get a whole series of great artists on this book afterwards. I've got all of them. I bought them years ago when you and I started the Who's Who podcast, specifically because those Who's Who entries really blew me away. And so they've been in – I have like this little – bookcase thing, and in one shelf is my Micronauts, and the shelf right below that is my Atari Forest. My goal was always finish the Micronauts and then read Atari Forest. Well, I got back to Micronauts last weekend, which was very exciting, and I now I may need to jump forward and read the Atari Force because this was great. This was absolutely
1: fun. Speaking of Husu, I remember there was a whole thing where in the first, I think it's the second issue of Huzu, they skipped Blackjack. They didn't give him a listing, mm-hmm. and people were like, "Where's Blackjack?" Like they were all really mad and stuff. And they ended up getting Jail to do most of the listings yep. in huso Dart, and uh, Tempest. And so you know they, they that continued on. It was again really it, it, it's the best possible advertiser for these characters. And so yeah, this was great. And you know, I mean, it was it. I mean, look, we—we everyone knows we love Jerry Conway. We wax his car all the time. The show is so—I mean—but the sheer fact that the, the it's an Aquaman Farstrom show, it's pivoted around two characters that Jerry spent a lot of time writing and, and in Farstrom's case, creating. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we all know how much we love Jerry Conway. But I, it, it was fun to dig up stories that are not typically the stuff that we cover, and still be able to enjoy the living hell out of him, and just be like, yeah, this guy could just do a lot of stuff. You know, he could write sci-fi, he could write teams, he could write solo, he could write kind of teenage drama, he could do, he could he really handle a lot of things, and there's a reason why he's one of the biggest names ever in the industry, uh, because, uh, you know, he's super, super talented and still is.
2: And if you want to, yeah, I was going to say first, still, If you want to support some of his more recent stuff Of course there was a Firestorm collection that you can still buy uh, Which was a more recent Firestorm story He also did some recent Spider-Man stuff And he did a bunch of stuff for Car- uh, with Carnage as well for Marvel So those are some of those more recent collections If you want to go out and uh, support him From just stuff in the last few years
1: Yeah, and he's very active on Twitter So if you ever want to talk to him, go go on Twitter And just at Jerry Conway And like odds are he'll respond to you He's, oh, he's on Twitter a lot he's, he's fun to interact with
2: He's such a nice guy too Yes he is Well, I think that's going to do it for this stuff. Um, You know, Rob, there's been some changes around the network in the last couple weeks. You want to talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah. I mean, of course, uh, we have our website, which is FireAndWaterPodcast.com, and we have our Twitter feed, which is FW Podcasts. But uh, the new thing that we've launched is our Patreon page. Literally years in the making. So many arguments. Uh, We've lost (laughs) lost a Patreon page uh, because then, as we mentioned in last week's little plug uh, as David is has called it a goddamn commercial, uh, episode that we released. We talked about that. The costs of the network are going up and we have kind of, we, we, we've been covering all that for, for a long time, but now we thought, well, they're getting to the point where we want to, uh, you know, like see if people can be willing to help us out and, and keep the network going. And luckily, uh, it's going very well. And so if you want to contribute, uh, to keeping the fine water podcast network going you can go to our patreon page which is patreon.com fwpodcast fw podcast and of course we will have the link in the show notes of this episode and we have the link on our website so you can go and make a uh, one either a one-time donation or even better an ongoing monthly donation which uh helps helps keep us keep the network running and also entitles you to a bunch of really fun rewards like the ones we're about to get to that's right. Uh, we're not going to
2: sit here and rattle them all off, but there are dozens and dozens of supporters, and if you reach certain plateaus, you actually get to be mentioned on every episode of a show. For example, our thanks in the Aquaman and Firestorm Fire and Water podcast goes out spe- specifically to Adam Ackerman, David Gutierrez, and Gordon Tolt, uh, Gordon Tolton, Sorry, who uh, our favorite Star Trek Next Generation supporting cast member, uh, <laughs> who uh, have been kind enough to support us via Patreon and have told us that this is the show they want their recognition on. So thank you for that, guys.
1: Yes, and thank you very much.
2: So go out and join the dozens and dozens and dozens of folks who have already helped out. And, again, it's really to keep the lights on. This is not a cash grab by any means. It is literally to pay off Rob's uh, drug habit and to cover – (laughs) Wow! Oh,
1: man, that got dark fast.
2: (laughs) And to cover really honestly the hosting fees, which have gotten really exorbitant. So uh, that is going to do it for this episode. Again, go out to the gallery. If you want to see some awesome Inhumans action and some awesome Atari Force action, we will have some of the images from these comics out there. Better yet, go find these comics comics, actually. Atari Force have never been collected, but you can find them in the 50-cent bins. The Inhuman stuff, uh, Rob mentioned a collection right there. You can get right now with his story. So please go out there and pick up these books and love the heck out of them. And uh, Rob's already mentioned Twitter, Facebook, all that jazz, so I think that's going to do it. I
1: have to say, to end it, happy birthday, Jerry Conway.
2: There we go. That's why we're here. Have a good one, Jerry. So until (laughs) next time, folks, fan the flame.
1: And ride the wave.
0: Well, uh, Jeanette Kahn was uh, our publisher at that time. And this was back in, I guess, the early 80s, when uh, Warners was buying up a lot of companies. Uh, I, I think this, this was before Time, uh, the, the Time Warner made merger, I believe. They had bought Atari, and they saw that Atari was uh, a, a very popular system, and they wanted to somehow monetize that in other ways. Jeanette had this idea of synergy you know that we would create characters that could be turned into video games and video games that could be turned into comic books. Uh, Roy Thomas and I were brought up to uh, Sunnyvale to meet the create you know the the software programmers and, and marketers and artists uh, working at atari and We all pounded our heads and came up with different kinds of projects like Sword Quest, for example, which was a project that uh, uh, was directly tied to the uh, to the video games, uh, but one thing that we had done we had done this this little booklet uh, that called Atari Force, which was designed to just be a uh, a giveaway with the video games, but Annette, Jeanette liked the name. You know, she said this is a good name, and we we could you know make some make a, a regular book out of this, but. When we, when we were talking about it and I came to New York uh, to plan the book, I said, you know, I don't, I, don't, I don't think we should just do this as like a, a Star Trek ripoff, you know, a, a group of scientists and space travelers and all of that. Uh, let's really make it a, you know, a, a, a book about. Uh, all these different species, and, you know, we have this opportunity to, to do this, you know, wide, wild, open world which, which wouldn't tie into the rest of the DC universe and which was always a good thing because you we weren't tied down by what we already knew It was just this bizarre Wonderful moment, you know, where we brainstormed for about a week uh, Jose and, and myself and Andy Helfer who was going to be our editor uh, just brainstormed throughout names, throughout ideas, throughout uh, shtick, storylines, and came up with this project that I think transcended the rather mundane uh, uh, you know, origins you know, of, of just wanting to do a knockoff book of, uh, that used the name Atari. It sort of grew like Topsy, you know, as they used to say.